Amen. So I realized the past two times I've preached, I've done this, and as I was preparing this sermon, I just went there again. So forgive me, we love me to do, to do a, one more history lesson for you. I know I'm a, I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to certain things of history, um, and I love World War II. And so um, I, I was uh, reading about the Battle of, of Midway, which is one of the crucial battles in the Pacific during World War II. And uh, what's fascinating about the Battle of Midway is that the United States knew exactly what was coming. Uh, We knew what they were going to do. And it goes back to these code breakers um, in Honolulu. And uh, what they did is, uh, uh, let me make sure I get the guy's name right, Um, uh, Rochefort, um, Lieutenant Rochefort. And uh, he was the head of the intelligence unit in Honolulu. And they had cracked the code. And uh, the one thing that they were trying to figure out was AF. They, they had these designations for different locations. And AF was the one that was very crucial here. They had already figured out that anything that started with A stood for American. Now, to me, that's not that great of a code. Um, I would have come up with something different than A stands for American. But hey, whatever. You know? So they had that part down. What was key was the F. What is the F? AF, because they started to see this chatter about AF, and through a lot of different things, what Rochefort and his staff figured out, AF is midway. And they saw, uh, they began to see that there was this schedule, and when uh, these carrier groups and such were going to head out to AF. And so what they had to do is they had to get clearance, from Admiral Nimitz there in Honolulu needed to get clearance for what the U.S. was going to do with our fleet. And so they sent the information back to Washington, to Admiral King, and to the intelligence offices in Washington. Now, I wasn't in the military. Scott or people like this will probably laugh at at this. The people in in, in Washington, the people in Honolulu, they were kind of at odds. There was a little bit of pride there. and, um, And the people in Washington didn't think the people in Honolulu were right. And it became kind of this pride thing. And so they said, no, that's that's not correct. We think that they're gonna send their carrier groups south. An attack in the south, and Rochefort and Honolulu is going. You guys are idiots. Like I am right. This is this is what they are going to do. And like, no, you're not right. We're right. And and so they're so what Rochefort did. And this was brilliant. They 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 put out this information over over the radio waves that the the salination plants had broken on Midway, and that there was going to be a freshwater shortage. And they put that out there. And what they waited to hear was the chatter. Uh, over the Japanese uh, radio to see if they started talking about water and fresh water and AF. And sure enough, within a couple days, they started to pick up chatter and hearing about uh, fresh water issues on AF and be advised. And in uh, Rochefort, they went, uh-huh, got them. And uh, I told Admiral Nimitz, and Nimitz said, send the carrier groups. And basically, I think, had made that decision uh, without King's approval. But King, he heard it. He was convinced. They weren't real happy with him and the, and, uh, the, the, um, the other guys because they had been proven wrong. But that's a whole other story. But sure enough, they were right. And you know the, the rest of the story. Our carrier groups went up there. And the United States won a decisive battle, a key battle, um, at Midway um, there. And uh, that's exactly what John is doing for us in his epistles. He's putting out there a test. Because there were these questions, what is wrong and what is right? Just like there was there. D.C. is saying one thing, Honolulu is saying the other. Which one is correct? And, and John does exactly what Rochefort does. He says, listen, I'm going to put this out. Here's the test. You, you look at this, you look at these three things, and if these three things are there, then you know you have your Christianity right. He puts it out there, just like Rochefort did. 
The idea being that we can now examine it, know it's true, and then act accordingly. This is what First and Second John especially are about. You have been given the measuring stick here in First and Second John. We're going to talk about that today and unpack the, uh, these letters a little bit. So here's uh, the backstory. Okay. I'm going to kind of blow through this. All three letters were written by the Apostle John. Now, some people would kind of dispute, ah, I'm not so sure about 2nd or 3rd John. Uh, and we could talk about that, but we're not going to take the time today. But I, I believe all three letters were written by, uh, by the Apostle John, son of Zebedee. And, um, and uh, this has been pretty well embraced throughout church history. So we're just going to go with that. Um, written to believers in Asia Minor. It was written to believers in Asia Minor. Now, 1 John uh, seems to be a circulatory letter that was uh, intended to be read by churches, probably in proximity to to Ephesus. Uh, Most uh, believe that John was living in Ephesus at this time, and he wrote this letter, and it circulated there through Asia Minor. Probably the same footprint and quite possibly the same churches that the le- seven letters of or that the letters of revelation went out to the, the seven churches of revelation it would have been that same footprint there in asia minor so first john went out intended to be read passed on much like maybe the book of hebrews or some of these other new testament books colossians um, and circulated amongst the churches second john could have been the same thing it's a little more uh, unsure about second john although there's a very specific lef- reference to the lady uh, uh, Tim read it for us a little bit earlier, uh, written to the lady. Uh, that was not John's girlfriend, okay? Uh, the lady in Second John, I believe, is the church. And it, it could quite possibly, he was writing to a very specific church. Lady is singular there. It may be plural, it, it, you know, multiple churches. But, but there's a, a little bit of a specificity there, Second John. And Second John really is, 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 is the same as First John. If, if, if you kind of take out the last couple chapters of Second John about what to do with false teachers, you feel like you're reading the same book over again, okay? So Second John covers a lot of the same material, but it adds a little bit more on how specifically to deal with false teachers. And then Third John is written to a specific uh, individual named Gaius, and where John is encouraging him and applauding his faith, and we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about Gaius here in, in just a moment. Uh, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written to directly confront false teachings and belief about Christ and Christian living. I put that in quotes for a reason. Uh, common themes span all three letters. Okay, Common themes span all three letters. 1st John is obviously the longest. It's the most exhaustive. Um, it, it very well was written as a follow-up in defense of John's gospel. Uh, one of the things that may very, very possibly have been happening was that these false teachers were actually using John's gospel against him. Um, it, this whole thing, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that way of thinking, um, a lot of people didn't like that. So they're, they're pointing at John's gospel and saying, see, John's out the lunch. Like, the, the deity does not become flesh. That, that's, a, that's a lower deity. And, um, and so uh, some think that First John was written as a follow-up apologetic defense to, for John to kind of dig in even more and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> what we say about Christ matters. I, I, I'm, I didn't get it wrong. <laughs> Jesus came uh, in the flesh. Christ came in the flesh. Um, Second John, like I said, briefly summarizes these major points and adds strict instructions on how to, to respond to false teachers. And then third John, I said again, praises Gaius, who embodies practical love through hospitality to those who went out for the sake of the name. So John, um, and, and I'm sorry, Gaius and third John kind of embodies some of the characteristics 
that John talks about in 1 John. I don't think necessarily that John did that on purpose, but, but I think that's as we, we get it together here, we read 3 John, we're like, oh wow, some of the things that he talked about in 1 John as far as practical Christianity, uh, Gaius shows us, and Diotrephes um, is condemned because he's kind of the antithesis of Christian love. You heard it here from Tim when he read 2 John about the emphasis of love, 1 John, the emphasis of love. You get to 3 John, Gaius, yes, he shows it. Diotrephes, no, Diotrephes only cares about himself, and he's the antithesis of it. So there's kind of an overview of the three letters. Um, let's talk about then this, this wrong teaching. Uh, the teaching embraced wrong theology about Christ and wrong judgments about Christian living. Wrong theology about Christ and wrong judgments about Christian living. Uh, the wrong theology basically was this. They denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They denied that Jesus was truly Christ, truly the Son of God, truly deity. This, was, this is basically the false teaching surrounding Jesus uh, here that John is facing. And you see this in, in the passages he, he, he addresses here. Who is the, the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Second John 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. So you see there what the false teaching is, is, is putting out there by what John is, is stating as rebuttal. Um, and then Christian living. Wrong views on Christian living. John writes this in 1 John. If we claim to have fellowship with him, God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in, out the truth. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So wrong views about Christ and wrong views about Christian living. Along those lines... They also were thinking, I can claim spirituality, I can claim to know God, and I can I cannot love other people. Uh, I can be an arrogant jerk <laughs> and not care about others, and it's okay. And John writes, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Okay? So wrong theology about Christ and just wrong morality, wrong ethics. And these are the two principal things that John is addressing in, in his letters. Now most people believe that John's epistles were written um, in the late first century. Okay, why does that matter? Well, that would coincide with the time when some, some, some bad teachings, some things, uh, these ideas that some have labeled as Gnosticism, when those ideas were kind of in their infancy. Uh, docetism is another false teaching that was around at the time, and, and kind of, uh, uh, they're kind of broad, but, but um, in their infant stages, some of the things that, that, um, that they would have been uh, putting out there in, in this way of thinking um, is this, is, is that the, the flesh uh, is bad, the spirit is good, and, and so it makes no sense that Jesus would come and put on flesh. That's, that, that's not... It's not logical. Deity uh, would not do that. It would have attacked the humanity of Christ. Uh, some went so far to say that, you know, that, that this man Jesus, that Christ came upon him, deity came upon him at his baptism, 
but then left before he died because deity doesn't do that, you know. And, and what they did then is they kind of attacked everyone else, and they said, you just have a low Christology. Matt, your views on Jesus are actually lower than mine because you believe Jesus became a man. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, Jesus would not, God would not do that. And, and so this teaching became, started to become very confusing and, and kind of attractive. Some people say, oh, that kind of makes, that kind of makes sense. Whatever the case, whatever form of Gnosticism or Docetism that, that John was addressing, it in some way, shape, or form put forward false views about uh, Christ. Um, the IVP dictionary, um, uh, Burge is, is the guy's name, he writes this, For John's opponents, the incarnate Jesus Christ was no longer occupying the central place in Christian faith. At best, these secessionists had nominal interest in the Jesus of history and tradition and, and instead were looking to inspired spiritual expressions or experiences that lifted them above the conventional views of John. I. Howard Marshall writes, It was no longer necessary to accept Jesus as the Son of God in order to have knowledge of God. All right? So, we don't have any Gnostics sitting out here today, I don't think. Okay. Um, but we do live in a world, and even in Christianity, where, where, where Jesus gets minimalized, right? It's the same thing, different name 2,000 years later, but we live in a world where it doesn't matter to get Jesus totally right. Jesus isn't as important as traditional Orthodox Christianity has claimed him to be. It doesn't matter, okay? John's screaming at us, in his epistles, it does matter. It does matter what you think about Jesus. And lastly, in, in this part, the, the teaching was being embraced and, and propagated by former church members, which made it more dangerous and more disconcerting. And you have the passage there from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us. These people, these, these, these fellow church members, they went out from us because they were embracing these wrong views, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out shows that none of them ever belonged to us. But that became disorienting. You think about it, if all of a sudden, like half of our church started going, you know what? God has showed us some things. We, we've been reading the Word of God a little more carefully, and we actually believe that, that, that this is, 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 is true about the Word of God, and, and we've just been nuancing it wrong. We need to think, that, and they, and they kind of laughed and started teaching this and, and began in church. And some of us who were left, we'd start going, man, did, did, did we get it wrong? Like, like, wow, me and Marco used to be really close, good friends, and now he's, he's te- like, you can see why friends and church family started, started doing this. It'd be a little bit discouraging, a little bit disconcerting. And that's what was going on here. These, these people uh, who these church members knew were now presenting themselves with this new cutting-edge belief system. And, and they presented themselves as having this advanced and superior way of thinking. In, in 2 John chapter, uh, verse 9, John says, these are the people who run ahead. They, they've run ahead. They, they feel like they've gone on to something bigger and better. And again, this produced uncertainty amongst those who were left, the, 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 the ones who were left began to feel like, maybe I'm not the spiritual one. The confidence in, in what they had espoused began to erode a little bit. Right? 
And, and this is the way it goes. This is the way it goes today. Because it, it keeps happening over and over and over again. It seems like every month there's a new like, Christian celebrity who's putting out on their Twitter account, like, I no longer espouse these views about Jesus. I, I was really wrong all along. And you, and you get these Josh Harris's and Kevin Max and, and, and Rhett and Link and all of these people who are like, it, and it's not enough just for them to go away, but they've got to put it out there now for everyone to see. And the way they present themselves over and over again is that I have elevated to a higher level of spirituality. I have thought this through. I have weighed it. And what you continue to hold on to is, is foolish and, and narrow-minded and, and limited. But, but I've arrived. And, and it is over and over and over again. This is how this is presented. And it hacks me off as a youth pastor because I see our, our students and people like going to these people who they've looked up to. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's right. No, he's an idiot. He's wrong. But they're trying to not just go themselves. They're trying to draw other people along, and they're trying to make you feel stupid for hanging on to Jesus. And John will have nothing uh, to do with it. He doesn't buy into this. It's better to be progressive and not tied down to the narrow-minded and old-fashioned beliefs. John proudly reverts to what they had heard from the beginning. You hang on to that. What you've heard from the beginning is true. What you've been taught from the beginning about Jesus is true. What you've been taught from the beginning about the gospel and how to live out your faith is true. And I don't give a rip what some modern, slick, new person comes along and says about what it means to be spiritual. They're wrong. And John is screaming this at us from his epistle. So he gives three tests. Okay, he does what Rochefort does. He goes, okay, here it is. Here is what authentic Christianity will look like. Number one, real Christianity is confirmed through right belief in Christ. Right belief in Christ. True Christianity will be confirmed through right belief in Christ. And that belief is that Jesus has come in the flesh. Okay, for those of you who are struggling, like what is real, what is not, true or false. Anyone, is anyone else in here, I hated true or false exams in college. Is that can I get, no one, you all love them? I hated them. John, I hated them. Don't give those. People don't like them. Um, no, right? And they're, they're terrible because it's like, especially when you get one of these statements that you're not really sure, and then like you're sitting and you, and you have a 50-50, and then you kind of agonize over it, and, and uh, you know, sometimes I just end up making designs on the Scantron because I figure I just have just enough good of a chance with the dots. Luke, right? Yeah, you, you know. Um, but yeah, I hated true or false because you're like, ah, I could rather have multiple choice and, and like, well, what if I get it wrong? Which one is right? Which one is wrong, right? John's saying, you don't have to wonder that. Here's the right view of, about Jesus. It's what you've been taught from the beginning. Hang on to it. Jesus Christ was God. God came in the flesh and lived. If you hang on to that, you are on the road to true and right belief and true and right Christianity, Right? There's this overwhelming testimony regarding the incarnation of Christ. And this is where John, he, he, he camps on this. He comes out swinging right away in chapter 1, verses 1. There's not even a greeting. He's just like, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. John comes out swinging, this is real, I was there. Do not question to me who Jesus was or what. I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. 
and lived it. It's God. It's who Jesus was. It's true. I was there. Right? Star Wars nerds, anyone in here? Matt, thank you. Several other hands. One of the great lines in uh, Force Awakens is uh, when uh, they're on the, the Millennium Falcon, right, because it came back, and Harrison Ford, I was so happy. I love Harrison Ford. Um, so Han Solo is back, and there's this, this great moment where Ray and um, her friends, uh, they're there talking in the Millennium Falcon, and they're talking about the, the old wars and the rebellion and then, like, the force and, like, Luke Skywalker. And they're like, yeah, I wonder if it was true and, and this. And, and, and they, I think, I don't remember if they asked Han Solo if he was just standing there, and he just looked at him, and he goes, it's true, all of it. And they're like, whoa. Right? He knew. Like Luke was his best friend. Well, not at first, but they became best friends. Right? Like, and they believed Han Solo, right? He was there. I lived, I fought. I was in the Money Falcon when Luke blew up the Death Star. It's all true. Don't stand here talking about it and questioning it. It's all true. That's what that's exactly what John's doing. They're like, is it true? Is there, did Jesus really come? And John's like, it's all true. I was there. I saw it. Confirmed through John's personal testimony. Confirmed through uh, the Spirit's testimony. This is the one who came uh, by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit of God testifies that Jesus was the Son of God. First John 5, 7 through 8, and I wish we had time to unpack this one. It's a little bit more nuanced, but for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. What does the water and the blood mean? Most commentators believe that the water is, is Jesus' baptism, and the blood is his sacrificial death on the cross. And basically what John is saying here is these key moments in Jesus' life. I saw the Spirit came down. God spoke. I saw the, I saw the death of Jesus. I saw the, what happened that day. I saw the, the, the resurrection. Like These things all testify to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't question it. It's true. And lastly... God himself. God himself testifies. We accept human testimony. They're fine. Accept my testimony. I was there. But, but God himself, his testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God. Right? You got to get it right. Jesus came in the flesh. And, and, and in case there's any doubt, John wants you to know, if you're still denying this testimony, this is what you are. You're a liar and an antichrist. Anyone in here want that label? Mm. <laughs> liar. Antichrist. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Second John 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Right? These people do not have the Father. Here's the irony in the whole thing. These, these people were going, we're more spiritual. I'm more spiritual than Scott because he just sits here and, and comes and he believes that Jesus is, is, was God and, and I, I have the higher plane of spirituality than Scott. I'm more connected to the Father because you believe this. About, John's going, what? Connected to the Father? You don't have, you don't have the Father. <laughs> you don't have the Father. You can't have the Father and deny that Jesus was the Son of God. You can't. You, have, you don't have the Father. You're calling God a liar, right? 
who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. And lastly, anyone who rejects Christ and embraces this testimony does not have life. Life comes through faith in the son as he defines himself to be. You put your faith in him, you have life, right? What you believe about Jesus matters. He is the dividing line. You take away the humanity of Jesus, you take away everything. You take away the humanity of Jesus, you take away the human sacrifice portion of the gospel. You take away the human sacrifice of Christ on the cross, you take away the gospel. We have no gospel without the God-man dying on the cross. He's the central point of all of history. He's the dividing line in what you say and believe about him matters. Period. Jeff and I were talking uh, this week about this. I said, Jeff, it almost starts starting to feel a little bit like a broken record. We keep talking about these books. We keep going back to like it's like false teaching, like uh, you know Colossians about false teaching, uh, Hebrews false teaching. You had Second Peter last week. False. Yeah, I told. Matter of fact, I told him. I said I was sitting there listening to you preach last week, and I'm looking at it, going, I could just take this outline and preach it again next week, and call the call it Second John, you know, Third John, it, false teaching. Next week, Jeff, uh, he kind of laughed. He goes, Yeah, next week we've got Jude false teaching, right? Now again, I'm not saying all these. Everyone, you know, you read one, you read them all. No, no. No, the, the, the depths of every one of them is different, and the nuances is different, and the implications is different in, in each and every one of them. But, but I think it, it communicates something uh, about, uh, about truth, doesn't it? It, it? it communicates to us that Satan fears Jesus. Satan fears Jesus. Satan knows he can't beat Christ. Satan knows he can't beat Jesus. So the best thing that he can do is to get you to think wrongly about Jesus. That's all he's got. He can't beat Jesus, he can't beat truth, but if he can get you to think wrongly about Jesus, that's all he has. Mark Dever, in in one of his books, uh, was quoting a friend who he didn't cite, which I didn't think was very nice. You should cite your friend if you're right. But uh, he writes this, real danger is not unbelief, but wrong belief. Not irreligion, but heresy. Not the doubter, but the deceiver. Right? How many warnings do we come across in the New Testament about atheism? Not very many, if at all. Atheism is not a threat. False belief about Jesus, that's the threat. That's the threat. These wrong teachers affirmed the idea of Christ, but doubted and denied that Christ became flesh, that the man Jesus was truly the incarnation of God. I believe that Jesus was a good man. I, I, I believe his existence, but he wasn't truly God. John's like, it's wrong. It's wrong. And also, if you deny the significance of Christ's incarnation, not only are you denying right theology, but you're denying all the practical aspects. It's no wonder that they were getting their ethics wrong. You get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. You get Jesus wrong, there's no basis for love. What, is, what does love mean? I don't know. Without Christ. Right? Again, belief in Jesus is crucial. So real, Christ, real Christianity is demonstrated through that. Next, uh, real Christianity is demonstrated through obedience to God's commands. A theological rationale had formed making ethical behavior of no consequence for the Christian life. There was an indifference towards morality. You can be righteous without doing righteousness. 
So what happened was that enlightened spiritual experiences were what validated Christianity and spirituality. While at the same time, questions of moral conduct were deemed irrelevant. Okay? So again, if this is Gnosticism or some early form of Gnosticism, this makes sense because what it would say is that, is that you have these two realms of reality. You have the spiritual and the flesh, and the flesh is bad. You are all trapped in, the, in, in, in your flesh. Your, your flesh, your body, it's like a prison. And you're trapped in there. And, and, and your spirit needs to get out and be free because that's where, that's where, so not only does that affect theology of Christ, but it also affects ethics because what they said then, their rationale and their reasoning would go, so what I do in my body doesn't matter. What I do in my body is completely irrelevant to my spirituality and my holiness. It doesn't matter. The body doesn't matter. Again, I don't think there's any Gnostics sitting out here today, but that's not too far from where we land sometimes, right? I can be a Christian and still do whatever I want, I can still call myself a Christian and, and make my own rules. I don't have to follow all God's commands. I, I, I got grace. What matters most is that I'm just connected with Jesus. And God says, no. It matters. He gives us some passages here. Well, let me walk through these real quick. If I claim spirituality and fellowship with God but don't walk in obedience to his commands, I'm a liar. Right? I demonstrate my love by keeping his commands. Uh, the moral patterns of my life reveal who I am, who I'm truly aligned with. Right? If I continue in sin, I'm born of the devil. If I don't continue in sin, I'm born of God. And I cannot love God in the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Can't have both. They would have said you could. A lot of Christians today would say you could. The hope of what's to come will motivate me to live a pure life. First uh, John 3, 3, uh, this passage, I love it. Um, John writes, um, uh, where'd it go? All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So this is real to you. And if you understand and cling to the promises that God has made, it, it's, it's going to cause you to care about holiness and care about purity. And then again, he gives the example of Gaius in 3 John, verses 3-5. through 5. Gaius is one who walks in the truth and lives out his faith. And John is like, that's it right there. That's, that's true spirituality. That's true Christianity. Someone like Gaius. Right? This is the message we have heard from him. Declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all of our sin. Right. And by the way, John's not saying that Christians never sin. Continuing in sin means patterns. Like, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. John makes allowance for sin in 1 John chapter 1. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But there's a difference for John between someone who, who's trying to live holy and who cares deeply about God's moral standards and still sins on occasion... Yes, there's forgiveness, of course. We're going to do that the rest of our lives. But the person who just disregards God's rules and doesn't care and continues in the same patterns of sin and they're not getting accountability, they're not seeking help, that, that's, that's, that's where John says there's a problem. You, you have to care about what you're doing. Your, your morality matters. Right? Um, so that was the second test, right? Uh, keep his commands. Um, I'm going to go here to the next one. Um, I can't find it now. There we go. True love is demonstrated through loving others. True Christianity is demonstrated through loving others. 
these secessionists had become elitists and intolerant. Again, there's, a, there's an irony there that they, they were saying, where are the super spiritual ones? And, th- and they became um, prideful and boastful. And they began looking down on other people. And John's going, no, you can't, you can't have that either. You, you say you love God, but you look down on your brothers. That's, that's not Christianity. That's not, that's not being spiritual. You have to love. And John, for John, man, go back. When he's talking about love and loving one another, his gospel provides an incredible framework for what he means by love. Just go to John 13. When John says love, what does he mean? Well, John has in mind John 13. Jesus getting down with a basin and towel and washing his disciples' feet. Humble servanthood. That's, that's love. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end, uh, John writes in his gospel. Jesus goes on later in John 13 and says, a new command I give to, to love one another as I have loved you. That's in John's mind when he says, love one another. How did Jesus love and what was new about that, right? The command to love one another was as old as the Old Testament law. Do unto others, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It had always been there. What was new about it, Jesus? Love as I have loved you. That's the new part. What does that look like? The cross. Self-sacrificial love for somebody else. So this is what John has in mind. So when he's saying love here, it's not just this warm, gushy feeling like when you guys come in here on Sunday morning, like all have warm, gushy feelings towards one another. And, and then you're spiritual. Like give a, give a little bit of a hug. Give Rusty a hug. And, and make yourselves feel better, right? Rusty's like, get away from me, John. Uh, right? No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not this warm, gushy, happy feeling that we have towards one another. It's loving like Christ is loved. If I claim to be in the light, hate my brother, I'm a liar. And let's make sure we understand here. Because we're easy for us to go, oh yeah, I love, I love people at church. And when we say that, we have in our minds like our, our best friends at church. People who think like us. If you stop there, you're believing a lie of Satan. And he's going to make you feel good about something you shouldn't feel good about. That's not just what John has in mind when he talks about us loving one another. I must love those who are difficult to love. I must love those who are difficult to love. Oh, I skipped the point. I'll come back to this one in a minute. You think about the person. Let's just start here at church because this is the context we're preaching in today. You think about the person who comes and sits in this room every single Sunday. Think about the person who bothers you the most. Thinks about the person who disagrees with you about whatever given topic you want to put out there the most. Think about the person who annoys you. Think about the person who's made you angry. That's the person. That's Christian love. When you love that person. It says somewhere else in the Bible, like the sinners love the people they like. Whatever. No. The person you don't like. That's who John is calling you to love. That's when you look like Jesus. How do we know this? Because that's what Jesus did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was a rebel. I was his enemy. And he came and died for me. Love 
like I have loved you. That's it, right there. The person who's my enemy, the person who doesn't like me, the person who's disagreed with me. That's who you're being called to love in tangible and practical ways. It's not love in, in just word, John says, but love indeed as well. Serve them. You think about that person who makes you angry the most, the person you've disagreed with the most, and think about in the next week how am I going to show that person a tangible expression of love. Then you've lived out First John. A little bit harder. But that's how I know I have true Christianity because that's what true Christianity looks like. A lady, I don't even know who she is. Her name's Dorothy Day. She was quoted in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? She says this, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Just follow that? I really only love God as much as the person I love. I'm sorry. See, I can't even do it. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I love God. I love Kathy. Pete, eh, not so much. But I love God. And John's like, no, what? no. If you, if you say you love God and you hate Pete, it doesn't make any sense. If you came up to me and said, Craig, I, I, you're my favorite church person. I love you. You're the best. You're the greatest, best pastor ever. But I can't stand your wife. It's usually the other way around. But we'll just go with this. Uh, I can't stand Kathy. You think I'd be like, all right, yeah, whatever, no problem. <laughs> That's fine. Probably not. <laughs> okay. If you're going to tell me you love me, but I hate my wife, I, we're probably not going to be okay. Right? That's what John's saying. True Christianity is loving others in real and tangible ways. Gaius, again, uh, provides an example of this. Diotrephes provides the antithesis of this. You'll love. That's the second test. Moving on from that, real quick here as we, we finish up. Uh, I must love those who are difficult to love. I'm, I get behind the slides all the time. I, I can't do two things at once. So if I miss a blank and it really is bothering you, come see me afterwards. Um, real Christianity will know how to deal with true and false teachers. Okay, and this is threaded throughout 1 John. 2 John really hammers this. And 3 John shows us a picture of it as well. I'll call them what they are, first of all. We've already been to these passages. They're antichrist and they're liars. They're not some cool person with a neat new idea that I should think about. They're liars. They're antichrists. Okay? Acknowledge the reality of their existence and heed the warnings of their danger. And we've already read this. They're already among you, John says. The antichrist uh, and the way of thinking of antichrist is, is already there. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Test everything against God's truth. John chapter 4. Test the spirits to see which ones are from God. Every idea that comes in to your home, to your mind, um, you need to test it against God's truth. And if you don't know the answer, go to someone who can help you. Do not tolerate their presence in your life or give them an authoritative voice. Uh, look over here. This is in 2 John 7. Right at the end of 2 John 7. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your, this teaching being the accurate teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Do not tolerate their presence, right? We don't have this today. This was uh, dealing with these itinerant preachers who would come around and, and preach. And they'd come like, hey, Terry and Summer, uh, we're going to do some meetings. Can we, can we stay with you for a little while? Oh, well, okay. And, and that's the way it would work. So they'd stay with Terry and Summer, and then they'd go out and do their teaching. And John's like, if those people are wrong teachers and, and Terry and Summer are housing them, like, like, you're participating in their wickedness. Like, don't allow them in your house. 
Don't allow them to have influence. Don't help enable them. Don't. Now, we don't have that today, right? When was the last time an itinerant preacher came to any of your houses and said, can I stay with you so I can preach, right? Not a thing. But we've got to be really careful about allowing false ideas and false teaching to come and reside in our homes. And I think it's a lot more dangerous and a lot more prevalent today through social media and the internet and so on and so forth. And how many of us are allowing false ideas to reside in our homes? One, without even knowing about it. And two, without even questioning it. How many of us are allowing our children to be subject to people when we've given an authoritative voice to, to wrong teaching because we allow our kids unfettered access to every area of the, of the internet and we never, you've done what John is, is warning against here. You, you've given an authoritative voice in your home. And John's like, you can't. Be intolerant. It's okay to be intolerant about some things. Be intolerant about this, Right? Go out and proclaim truth for the sake of the name. That's how we deal with, with false teaching and truth. We, 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 we go out, this is what these people did in Third John. They went out and proclaimed truth for the sake of Jesus. That's how we confront false teaching. And show hospitality and to support to those who are going out. And there are ways that we can do that. We can support missionaries. We can support one another. We can support people who are involved in, in, in mission. Lastly, and we're not going to take the time to, literally, you could spend probably a two or three week sermon series just talking about, this is John's primary thing here as we, as we end. He wanted his, his readers to have confidence. Remember, their, their, their confidence and their faith was being eroded. They're starting to be ca- causing the, the question, do I, do I really have a, a good high v- spirituality? Are these people right? He wants to establish confidence in his people. That's why in chapter 5, verse 13, he gives this purpose statement, I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. That you may know, the word know is used 23 times in 1 John. 23 times in a five-chapter book. 23 times that you may know. John wants his readers to have confidence. What the world has is not better. What these false teachers are putting out there is not better. I gave you all the passages of Scripture because I knew we wouldn't have time to read them, but here's the summary of them. Our confidence is based on certain and concrete testimony, right? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, what we've seen and heard and touched. He wants them to be confident in their spiritual standing and identity. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, right? He says, I write to you uh, men and I write to you sons. And, right? What does he write to them? That your sins are forgiven. That you know him who is from the beginning. He says that two times. That you have overcome the evil one. He says that two times. That you know the Father, right? The secessionists do not have any inside track to God. You've been given everything you need. You're strong and the word of God lives in you. In chapter 2, verse 17, he wants them to be confident that doing God's will will lead to eternal life and blessing. In chapter 2, verse 20, he wants them to be confident that they've been given the spirit and been given truth. In chapter 2, verse 27, he wants them to be confident that what they have is real and he wants them to stay in it. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, he wants them to be confident that they are loved and that their hope is sure. In chapter 3, verse 24, he wants them to be confident by knowing God because greater is he that is in your hearts, right? In chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, he wants them to be confident 
my walking in obedience and love. The more I obey, the more confident I will be in what God has said. In chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, he wants them to be confident that through Christ they've overcome the world. In chapter 5, verse 13, he wants them to be confident in eternal life. In chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, he wants them to be confident that their prayers are heard. In chapter 5, verse 19, he wants them to be confident that they are children of God and not under the evil one's control. And in chapter 4, verses 4 through following, he wants them to be confident that what they have has overcome anything that the world has. John wants his people to be confident because what they have is true. But you got to know what you have in order to enjoy it and be blessed by it, right? My wife will deny this. She hides candy. She hides candy. See, she's sitting there shaking her head. No, I don't. But this is what she does. So she takes the bag of M&Ms. No, she doesn't go hide it down in the closet. She she puts it in the, the Lazy Susan, kind of behind the sugar, underneath the hot pads, because she knows I'm a guy. And we man look, right? We don't move things. So she knows this about me. So, she's, so when I go to her, I'm like, I just found the M&Ms. You hid them. She's like, no, I didn't. They are right there in the counter. I'm like, you knew that I wouldn't look there, right? And I'm like, no, I, you know, I can't enjoy the M&Ms. She's like, they're right there. You could have got it. I'm like, I, I didn't know they were there. I can't enjoy the M&M's if I don't know we have the M&M's. I have to know we have the M&M's so I can enjoy them. Underneath the thing, behind the thing, over on that doesn't count. John wants his readers to know they have the M&M's. 23 times he tells them you have the M&M's. 23 times you have them, you have them, you have them, you have them, you have them. Confidence, confidence, confidence. Enjoy them. In the Battle of Midway, Spencer, you can come on up. The Battle of Midway, the Japanese lost four of their prime aircraft carriers, one heavy cruiser, over 290 planes, and over 3,000 soldiers. It's been said of Rochefort by naval historians that he made more of a difference at a more important time than any other naval officer in the history of the Navy. Why? Because he discerned what was real, and then he acted on it. And not only did it matter in the Pacific, but the U.S. did not have to divert resources from the Atlantic and from the European front because of what they did that day. And it, so it had implications. Listen, what you believe to be true has implications in every aspect of your life. Discern what is real. Cling to what is true and you'll experience God's blessing. 